0: Hello and welcome back to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, there's not much going on on the battlefield this week. And the big news really is that the Pentagon has given Ukraine the green light for drone strikes inside Russia. Also, that it's fast tracking the delivery of uh, Patriot missiles, which could be used uh, against the waves of uh, incoming missile Attacks uh, the Russians are launching against Ukrainian infrastructure. We'll also be discussing reports that British special forces are active inside Ukraine and that Russia is running out of men.
1: Our guest this week is James Cowan, the decorated former general in the British Army, who is now chief executive of the Halo Trust. That's the charity which removes dangerous ordnance left by war. Later, James will explain how the war has impacted on Halo's ability to carry out its work in Ukraine. The effect it's having on humanitarian efforts elsewhere, and how the West should go about winning the peace in terms of reconstruction.
0: But first, let's talk in more detail about uh, these latest news developments. Probably the most interesting is a U.S. defense source telling the Times that the Pentagon has quotes given a tacit endorsement of Ukraine's long-range attacks on targets inside Russia after President Putin's multiple missile strikes against Kiev's critical infrastructure. Now, this is a contradiction of the official Pentagon line thus far, um, something we were actually talking about ourselves last week, which was that America was neither encouraging nor condemning such attacks. But it also implies an emboldening of the U.S. position, which up until this point has been to discourage attacks that might escalate the war in the direction of nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, I think it's hugely significant. And the source has confirmed the last point you just made, Patrick, by adding, we're still, and this is a quote, we're still using the same escalatory calculations. But the fear of escalation has changed since the beginning. It's different now. This is because the calculus of war has changed as a result of the suffering and brutality the Ukrainians are being subjected to by the Russians. Now, that's their explanation, but I think it's also an, an acknowledgement by America that Russia's use of nuclear weapons is probably off the table. Uh, so don't worry so much about escalation, certainly if it gives the Ukrainians the opportunity to defend themselves. What do you think, Patrick?
0: Well, there's definitely a move towards getting... Really important and possibly game-changing kit into theatre. The same official says nothing is off the table now. This will be music to the ears of Kiev because they've been begging for bigger and better stuff for a long time. I mean, the real game changer would, of course, be if the if the Pentagon was to greenlight, or rather, the White House, because it's a presidential decision. Uh, if they greenlit the Army tactical missile systems, the these this is the really state-of-the-art, 190-mile range uh, surface to surface missile system, which would actually really take the war to Russia. I think that's been considered too escalatory up till now. But in the meantime, there's been a really significant change in US commitment with the news that the US is about to send its advanced Patriot surface to air missiles to Ukraine. Uh, They've been asking for this for months and months and months. Uh, in Ukraine, because it's it, this is a really fantastic bit of kit. Um, it can knock down not only cruise missiles and aircraft, but even ballistic missiles. And um, this would really give the Russians a lot of pause for thought when they're standing over their steadily depleting missile supplies. Uh, I mean, they really would be, I think, consigning them to oblivion if they were launched uh, against Patriot batteries in place. It's not really clear how this is going to work. Will they be sent direct from the US or moved in theater? theater? There are several batteries nearby. There's two in Poland, one in Czechoslovakia, others in Germany, which would obviously be a hell of a lot quicker and speed is of the essence. They don't come cheap. Uh, Each missile costs $3 million. But in the long term, as we'll be hearing from James later on, uh, this could actually be a bargain given the massive cost of repairing infrastructure. Uh, We'll be hearing about that. By the way, Saul, did you know that PATRIOT is an acronym? I didn't know this, but apparently it's a bit of a labored acronym. It stands for Phased Array Tracking Radar to Intercept on Target. Get it?
1: I had no idea. Um, (laughs) uh, Thanks for that, Patrick. I I actually just thought it was a classic American titled PATRIOT, you know, the great Patriots, or at least some Americans
0: are. They've been around for a fair while. I mean, I remember actually seeing them in action in – the first Gulf War in 1991, uh, when they were the Iraqis were firing Scud missiles into Saudi, and they shot down the, the Patriots were there in you know obviously to defend Saudi airspace, and they managed to shoot down 40, but some of them did get through, including one that hit a warehouse in Daraa, killing 27 American soldiers
1: yeah I remember all the, all the all the scud emergency Patrick you were out there uh, scuttling to the air raid shelters. No doubt. I think what the Americans are very good at actually, uh, and your point about the Patriots actually being around for a while uh, underlines this is developing kit that can be adapted over time, can be uh, improved over time. I mean, that, a lot of their planes, for example, have been in service for quite a long time, and they just keep bringing out new versions. A bit like the Spitfire in the Second World War, Patrick, we do like our World War II analogies, where they knew they were onto a good thing, and they just kept upgrading it. Uh, what mark were we on by the end of the war, Patrick? Uh, I mean, that, was- well, I
0: 10. I can remember a 10, but <laughs> I'm not sure whether it went beyond that. And of course, they stayed in service with all these you know, kind of second-rank, third-rank military Air Forces. So they were still flying around in the 50s.
1: Yeah. Now, just to underline the American support, uh, Biden came out with a statement this week, uh, which again, I think is very significant, in which he announced that the US is committed to continue providing Ukraine with security, economic and humanitarian assistance, holding Russia accountable for its war crimes and atrocities, and imposing costs on Russia for its aggression. So, Here we have a pretty, uh, you know, full statement, which, again, is going to back up some of the things that uh, James is going to tell us about in the interview shortly.
0: Yeah, no, it's great to hear this unwavering commitment against the kind of, as we've said before, the kind of noises that are coming out of the commentariat saying uh, people are getting fed up with the war. As we both agree, I think it's all, you know, anecdotally, I don't get any sense of that. From people I talk to anywhere, it's, it's very much something coming from the media, media echo chamber. Now, something close to your heart here, Saul, corroboration. <laughs> the British forces are active in Ukraine, special forces, Royal Marines, um, Major General Robert McGowan, a former commandant general uh, of the Marines, was writing in Globe and Laurel, their very excellent official uh, Green Beret publication. And I think you know it's it's obviously your pals the S A S B S sorry S B S who are uh, are doing the sneaky beaky stuff. He says they have supported quotes discreet operations in a hugely sensitive environment and with a high level of political and military risk. What what do you read into that?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? He actually specifically referred to commandos, but uh, you know, this is shorthand, frankly. You will you, have to take it from me, Patrick. You probably know anyway that the SBS are still referred to as Royal Marines. If you go down to their base in Pool where I've been a number of times, it's known as RM Pool. I mean, the shorthand is Royal Marines, but in reality, of course, when you start talking about things like uh discrete operations and high level of political and military risk, there's no question this is the SBS. We had further confirmation last week if you remember. Of some of the kit that's being sent out there from our yeah. mole at uh, R.E.F. Bryce Norton. I hope he hasn't been winkled out in, <laughs> in the meantime, Patrick. But um, but this is absolute confirmation that they've been on the ground. It's significant because it's the first time that a senior military uh, figure has confirmed the use of special forces. Um, what they're actually doing there is not that clear. But the implication, or at least the way I'm taking it, Patrick, is that they may actually be going on missions themselves when they when they start talking. Talking about uh, a high level of political and military risk. That, of course, is the danger that they might be captured and, and how they're going to explain what they're doing there. I mean, a very obvious cover story, as I think we've discussed before, is that, you know, they're, they're mercenaries, basically, and they're helping the Ukrainians. But it's obviously highly dangerous work, uh, whatever it is, uh, and good on them. And that, frankly, from what we can see with the tap on the Kerch Bridge and other operations involving a marine kit, you suspect they're having a real effect.
0: And you were on the money as usual, and you'll be waiting so when they come back to debrief them and turn it into another best-selling book, we hope. Another significant development this week was a British intelligence assessment. The Russian army is running out of men and won't have enough troops to launch an offensive for several months. This kind of backs up what Foxy was saying last week. It's sort of um in line with pretty much everything else we've been hearing in that department. The view is that they're they're just too depleted, too generally degraded and lacking the competence to make any significant progress. And um they've, you know, really plumped for this absurd strategy of, of fighting to the death in Bakhmut. There's been some great reporting out of Bakhmut, actually, showing the images there, um, showing just how, how dreadful it is. And you know, inevitably, this is sort of impacting on on Russian uh, public opinion. Insofar as we can gauge it, have you been following this stuff about the recruiting efforts in various stans, trying to get drag people in from the periphery to, to put them into uniform?
1: Yeah, it's it's really extraordinary. Uh, some of the reports actually; these are are characters from, I suppose, independent countries, but closely aligned to Moscow. The stans, as you say, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And the Russians are trying to recruit a lot of these guys inside Russia, so they're obviously uh, migrants on the move, by offering them fast-track Russian citizenship if they agree to fight for Ukraine. Now, despite the fact that their own nations are relatively closely aligned with Putin, uh, there's actually been an announcement by two of those states, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, warning their citizens, (laughs) believe it or not, Patrick, that that they'll be liable to criminal prosecution if they do fight alongside Russian sources. So definitely breaking ranks there and, and unwilling to be drawn into this conflict, even in a proxy sense by their citizens fighting for Russia.
0: On that subject, uh, or a lie to that subject, I just want to mention a trial that's just finished in Moscow, which we learned about from the excellent uh, Professor Mark Galliotti. Now, this is important to highlight, I think, because I sometimes feel that we're not being fair to Russian people as a whole. It's not really our fault, given the difficulties of getting any free and frank expressions of the true feelings of people there, given the Kremlin's uh, repression of free speech. But There are plenty of people there who hate what Putin is doing. And one of them is someone called Ilya Yashin. He's a 39-year-old veteran activist, probably the most high-profile opposition figure at large who was still free until recently, uh, since Alexei Navalny was sent to prison in 2021. Well, now Yashin is going to jail too, having been predictably found guilty in a Moscow court of the charge, deeply questionable charge, as Professor Galliotti says, of spreading false information about the Russian military. Uh, what his crime was, was to raise uh, the allegations of systematic human rights abuses, i.e. war crimes in the Ukrainian town of Bucha uh, on his YouTube channel back, all the way back in April when, when these, these atrocities first came to light. He's, he's been found guilty, but not yet sentenced But at the trial, he he used it as a platform and amazingly, his, his remarks were reported and he addressed Putin directly. And I'm going to quote this in full because I think it's important. And he said, Mr. Putin, as you look at the consequences of this monstrous war, you probably realize what a big mistake you made. No one is greeting our army with flowers. We are called invaders and occupiers. Your name is now firmly associated with death and destruction. You have brought terrible misfortune to the Ukrainian people who will probably never forgive us but you're not only at war with Ukrainians, you're at war with your own people. You are taking away the Russian people's home. Hundreds of thousands of Russians are leaving their homeland because they don't want to kill or be killed. And his final words, after urging Putin to stop this madness immediately, he then tried to hearten his supporters saying, please don't give in to despair and don't forget that this is our country. It's worth fighting for. Be courageous. Don't give in to this evil and resist. Defend your neighborhood, defend your city, and above all, defend one another. There are many more of us than it seems, and together we are a great force. What a wonderfully stirring thing to say. So we should always bear that in mind. There there are lots of people like Mr. Yashin in Russia.
1: Wow, great stuff, Patrick. Uh, really wonderful to hear that. Uh, and to hear an example of the highest form of courage, in my view, and that's moral courage, standing up for what you know is right, even though there will be personal consequences for you. I mean, really extraordinary stuff. Uh, we need to get that message out. We're doing our bit uh, on the podcast. Last bit of news, related, I suppose, to the sort of ongoing uh global sort of instability as a result of the Ukraine war is the uh, news that the US Air Force has carried out its first successful test of a new hypersonic missile that can travel at five times the speed of sound and be launched from a B-52H Stratofortress aircraft. Uh, My point, of course, about the aircraft, that that B-52 is a new variant of something that's been around for a while. Yeah, ancient. Well, uh, this, of course, is in response to previous tests by both Russia and China with similar weapons. Uh, and it's a sign that the US uh, is clawing back ground in the superpower arms race. And frankly, that it's taking uh, you know, these global threats incredibly seriously.
0: OK, well, now we're going to hear from this week's guest, James Cowan, former British general who now runs the Halo Trust, the charity made famous by Princess Diana. And its initial job was clearing mines and other dangerous ordnance left by the war, although it's expanded its horizons since then. We asked James to tell us about the vital work that Halo does, and more specifically, what it was up to in Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion in February 2022. This is what he told us.
1: Okay, James. We first met when you were commanding the first Black Watch in the early 2000s and had just completed a tour of duty in Iraq. Since your retirement from the British Army as a Major General in 2015, you've been running the Halo Trust, which was made famous, I seem to remember, by that picture of Princess Diana in an Angola minefield being cleared by Halo employees in 1997. So can you, to start off with, tell us a little bit about the post-conflict work that Halo does and, more specifically, what it was up to in Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion in February 2022.
2: Yeah, thanks. I think Halo's has changed a lot, actually, since those days uh, in Angola in 1997. It was famous for two things, I suppose, post-conflict work and landmine clearance. It is now very much involved in uh, countries that are actually in conflict. Our biggest programme is Afghanistan. We've got 3,000 staff there. I actually went back to Kabul to see senior Taliban ministers in June. And I think it's actually, as a, a sideline, a, a very interesting connection between what took place uh, with the withdrawal of the coalition forces and the subsequent emboldenment of uh, Putin in, in Ukraine. But anyway, I was back there. Mm. That's our biggest programme. Uh, but we're also in other countries that have suffered the Russian form of war, Syria, Libya, uh, Yemen, uh, Iraq. Uh, these are countries that are in conflict and obviously in the context of Libya and Syria they have experienced something of that which uh, Ukraine now uh, is experiencing. So we, we are about 12,500 staff across the world. Uh, we were founded by two ex-soldiers, but we're not a military charity. We're very much a humanitarian organization. And it is our humanitarian duty, really, to to uh, save lives and restore livelihoods. That's sort of two parts of our mission. Uh, we've been in Ukraine since 2015. And we had a programme of about 430 staff based in the Donbass. Some of them lived in Mariupol. Most of them lived around Kramatorsk. And their their work was very much focused on clearing up after the 2014 conflict. Um, I think what's interesting in this context is the relationship between hard and soft power. And certainly the UK Integrated Review was meant to try and integrate the various levers of British foreign policy. I don't think there has been an integration of hard and soft power. Uh, my NGO, I think, clears up after hard power, but it's, it's a pretty mm. useful asset to have. If you can't put military boots on the ground, certainly uh, we are there on the ground. But come February the 24th, um, we had to decide what to do. And the initial feeling was, of course, that the Russians would quite quickly over, overwhelm Ukraine. So we put the program on ice, uh, but only for literally a few days and quite quickly, we realised that the Ukrainians were going to survive, and so we chose to pivot the program, extracting our staff from the east and pivoting to around Kiev. And uh, we, of those four hundred and thirty staff, some were stuck behind uh, Russian lines, somewhere in Mariupol, and endured the siege. Uh, some were mobilised and have fought for the Ukrainian army. Some have had. Domestic duties, many of our women have have had to look after their families. Some have become refugees. But of of the original 430 staff, about half continued to work for us. And from there, we were able to start to rebuild and then to grow. And we're now sitting at over 600 staff. And by uh, early next year, we will be over 1,000. And we have plans to grow to 2,000 during the course of 2023. Uh, So it's been a huge challenge to achieve that pivot. Recruiting originally people, Russian speakers from the east, now recruiting people from across Ukraine and now beginning, uh, having successfully begun clearance around all the satellite towns around Kyiv, moving out towards Kharkiv and uh, now heading down towards Mikhailov and towards Kherson and with the ambition of getting into all areas uh, which have been liberated as soon as possible. And I think what this shows is that the sort of humanitarian work that we do doesn't have to be post-conflict. It can be done within a live conflict, as and when areas become free of uh, enemy interference. So that's a sort of overview of how this program's gone. It's a a snapshot that's been a a pretty interesting and challenging year for us.
0: Can you give us some idea of what the actual work entails? Say you've moved into an area that's been liberated by the Advancing Ukrainians, how do you actually set about clearing the mines? So what we do
2: is always to work with the national authorities. And the the way the Ukrainians run this is essentially between the Ministry of Defense and their state emergency services, the SES. So we we work in a very cooperative way with them and they assign tasks to us and we go out and and, uh, fulfill them. We're famous for clearing landmines, but actually we all know that the, the Russians were only around Kyiv for a relatively short period of time and left voluntarily. So their uh, their time to prepare deliberate minefields or defensive belts wasn't very long. So the threat around Kyiv has been nuisance minefields and a lot of uh, booby trapping and other Unexploded ordnance,
0: artillery ammunition, rocketry, etc. So, just, just give us an idea, picture of what you know, what a day in the life of a, uh, of a of a mine clearing team.
2: Yeah. So, the first thing to do, as ever, you know, time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. So, survey is absolutely the first task, and we have been visiting communities. We've visited over 400 communities and uh, have found evidence of 265 of those communities having landmine contamination. Or other exploded unexploded ordnance contamination. So that is a huge amount of ordnance in in an area that was only occupied for two weeks. So once that survey is done and we've got a clear idea of what the problem is, a number of things that can then follow. The first thing is explosive ordnance risk education. Huge numbers of children, um, or just civilians of one sort or another who who might be vulnerable, farmers who might take uh, their tractors or the plows into areas where they may uh, inadvertently run over an anti-tank mine or people foraging. It's a a big um, part of Ukrainian life going into the forest to forage for mushrooms or children playing or anybody else who happens to be out and about. So getting them educated is an important aspect. And then clearance itself um, is obviously the fundamental role of what we do. Um, We have years of experience of this uh, around the world. So A big part of our build-up is the training of our staff. Uh, We always employ local people. We have a tiny number of international staff, but the vast majority of our program is made up of Ukrainian nationals. Um, We've got all sorts of interesting people working for us. Some of them uh, have never been in the demining world before. We employ women. Of course, with so many men uh, conscripted into the Ukrainian army, uh, of course, our ability to employ women is an important uh, strength that we can offer. But we can also employ IDPs, anyone displaced from their homes and looking for work. Some demobilised military, we do employ some who've been stood down, a few who've been lightly wounded and who wish to continue uh, doing something for Ukraine are working for us. So that, that's a sort of spread of people. But to give you some idea, we've got uh, some former dancers, we've got some maths teachers, we've even got a screenwriter working for the Halo Trust now uh, doing this uh, demining work.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the difficulty of working in the Russian-occupied areas, James? I mean, you mentioned that some of your staff had actually taken part or at least were present during the siege of Mariupol. Uh, So following on from that, are they safe? Do you know where they are? Uh, And and more generally, how tricky has it been?
2: So we're a humanitarian organisation and our our humanitarian duty is to help anybody from either side of this war. Mm. The reality is that we can only do that with the consent of... Uh, the, the parties to the conflict. And in this instance, we do not have the consent of the Russians to operate along uh, on their side of the line of control. Mm. So uh, that is obviously a disappointment, and it would be very nice if we were able to do that. But I don't foresee any circumstance in which uh, we would be allowed to. Um, as far as staff who have ended up on the wrong side of the line of control, they no longer work for us for their own safety. Mm. And of course, we would very much like to reconnect with them and reemploy them as soon as any areas are liberated. But for now, at least, uh, they are they're not able to work f- for the Halo Trust. The Maripol siege was obviously you know, a hugely difficult period. Uh, we had a couple of dozen staff trapped in Maripol during it. I'm pleased to say they survived it, um, and, and many of them have made their way out uh, westwards into Ukrainian-controlled areas. Some have not and have uh, you know, disappeared into the, into the mix, so to speak, uh, eastwards into Russia. Uh, and that, of course, is a cause of concern to me.
0: Sounds like a pretty risky business, James. Can you um, give us some idea of the dangers involved in the actual on the ground work?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you, you need to know what you're doing. And we our training is is careful, it's deliberate, it's, uh, it abides by international mine action standards. And uh, we, we make sure that people are fully qualified before we allow them to start clearing ordnance. You will see on YouTube many... Uh, videos of some what I would describe as highly ill-advised clearance techniques. You know, the Holo Trust is the world's leading landmine clearance NGO. We follow the highest standards, so the quality of the training is really important. But actually, the the risks to our people are probably less from the ordinance than they are from other factors. Booby trapping is a major issue. It's it's very easy to treat a landmine just as a landmine. If you clear it in a conventional way, it won't do you any harm. Uh, fundamentally it's a it's a pressure plate uh, it, which if uh, pressure is applied from the top it will detonate and kill you however if you approach it from the side and you destroy it in the traditional way it won't it won't do any harm
0: just to jump in there because we, we're starting from kind of ground zero on knowledge of this what would that actually entail i mean physically what do you do when you see a landmine sitting there in front of you so
2: there are two ways essentially of uh, destroying ordnance the first is to blow it up um, put plastic explosive beside it and to destroy it and the second is uh, some countries are reluctant to allow NGOs such as our own to to use explosives. So you can do a, what's called a low ordering technique in which you use things like a thermite flare. So two inert chemicals, when they come together, you know, they create high heat and basically burn out the explosive. So those are the sort of, the standard ways in which a landmine can be cleared. And when you're dealing with what we anticipate to be to, to be deliberate mine belts laid in, in depth in and around to the east of the Dnipro and all the way up really the line of control, which we think the Russians are going to be doing during the course of this winter, we're anticipating encountering hundreds of thousands of landmines. So the capacity to get to tempo and to clear these things quickly is really very, very important. You've got to be able to do this you know, clear thousands of them every day. And it isn't just the landmines, you know, there are figures out at the moment showing that the Russians are firing around 20,000 artillery rounds a day and given poor industrial standards within the, uh, the Russian uh, industrial complex, probably about 10% are failing. So if you've got, you know, if you're creating a, r- roughly 2,000 artillery blinds every day, which are probably reasonably deeply buried you have quite a significant clearance ch- challenge uh, for the future.
1: It's interesting you say the Russians aren't cooperating because, of course, your, or at least the ongoing conflict is is creating problems for the future, isn't it, at some stage when you are allowed to go in, uh, possibly after some kind of peace deal. We're not, Patrick and I, terribly optimistic that that's going to happen anytime soon. You're going to have to deal with all the ordnance that's been fired by the Ukrainians too, aren't you?
2: Yeah, but, of course, the Ukrainians are, f- are firing in a far more precise and limited way. I mean they're not the volumetrics are just not the same. So the figures I'm seeing are roughly so sort of 20,000 Russian rounds fired a day to about 4,000 Ukrainian rounds fired. So yes of course it is a an important factor but it's nothing like the volumes that the Russians are putting down range. I think also you've got to think about the the present campaign by the Russians to take out Ukrainian infrastructure mm. and the sort of long range more complex uh, weapon systems that the Russians are presently using. Some of them are not detonating on landing. So there is quite a an explosive ordnance disposal challenge associated with all of that as well.
0: Okay, that's all we have time for in part one. Join us in part two, when we'll hear the rest of James Cowan's interview and answer some listeners' questions.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. Welcome back. In part one, we heard the first part of our interview with Halo chief executive James Cowan. Here's what we asked him next. I was noticing on the Halo website, James, that your revenue has gone up uh, quite significantly in recent years. In fact, since you've been in post, it looks like to me, which I suspect is partly down to the tremendous work you and your team are doing. But I also note that the British government is reducing the money made available to the sort of work you're doing. Uh, is, is that a, a big problem for you?
2: Uh, if you say the British government is reducing overseas aid, it is. Um, and that's a fairly well-acknowledged fact from 0.7 to 0.5. And then some of that has been allocated to... Mm dealing with the refugee crisis. But in fact, you know, I'd like to sort of applaud the British government for continuing to support its work with with its Global Mine Action Programme. It's actually doing pretty well on that account. But we're not by any means reliant on British money. Mm. Our biggest donor is the United States State Department. It has a whole political military bureau in the State Department that um, is totally focused on clearing ordnance from uh, various areas around the world, from as far away as Vietnam to Colombia. Uh, But Germany is increasingly an important partner for us. And what I'm I'm really interested by with the Germans, the Germans are coming to London to meet us. They are starting to think in terms of not just the clearance of ordnance, but how they can pull together a broader hot stabilization package. So it's not just Mm -hmm. about winning the war, but about winning the peace. And I know you're you're presently gloomy about the, the possibilities of a peace deal. So am I. But I think we should be thinking not about a a wholesale peace deal, but about just the liberation of areas. And as each new area is liberated, how then it is got back to some sort of functioning economy again. Because what we're seeing is no one's going home and there are arguably as many as 300,000 houses now damaged as a result of this war. Mm. No one is going to plough a field. No one is going to restart a business or get a factory going or reactivate a port whilst it is contaminated as heavily as it is at the moment with explosive ordnance. So what we want to do with the Germans is be part of a broader array of interventions from chemical, biological, radiological survey, to rehousing of uh, refugees, to what we do in the explosive ordnance game, to rubble clearance, to restoration of essential services. And I think what the West should be thinking about is how it can bring together a range of interventions to make that possible.
0: There's quite a lot of this going on already, I think, James, isn't there. I know, you know various international organizations, the World Bank, uh, the European Bank, Reconstruction and Development, etc. There seems to be quite a lot of sort of coordinated thought given to that. But I think one of the concerns they have is about population. A lot of Ukrainians have left. As you say, the infrastructure is in, in a much enfeebled state. What, what are your own personal feelings about uh, the prospects of the country getting back uh, on its feet again after all this is over do you see a, simply a, a kind of viable deep bright future for ukraine from your observations as
2: i mentioned at the beginning conducting a recce to Mikolaev at the moment and uh, somebody who's with that recce described it as a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland i mean this is a scale of destruction on a on a scale not seen since the second world war so just the sheer number of buildings damaged i mean It is interesting that the Russians have targeted 700 critical infrastructure facilities. I mean, that is a huge range of places. And not just power, we're talking about places of cultural significance. Uh, We're talking about schools, businesses, hospitals, healthcare facilities, 7.5 million people displaced, 9.3 million people needing food and livelihood assistance, 16 million people needing help with water and sanitation. And of course, the energy infrastructure only able to meet 70% of demand. So this is a gigantic problem. And it seems to me that if Russia sits back and stops its conventional campaign and simply uh, continues to target the economy, that is that is an existential threat to Ukraine and something that needs to be tackled very forcibly. So not only in terms of air defence, which I think is obviously getting better, uh, but to try and give... To Ukraine, that which something like Israel has on an absolutely tiny geographic scale would be incredibly difficult. But so therefore, the capacity to repair infrastructure quickly um, is going to be very important for Ukraine. But I think your basic premise that Ukraine's long term viability is utterly dependent as much on its economy as on its military is going to be the central feature, I think. And the effort that we give to sustaining Ukraine militarily is very much in the news, But I don't see yet enough focus on the the economic effort.
1: Yeah. And obviously, you don't want to comment on the military aspect, given your role, James, but it would strike both of us, I think, certainly me, that, you know, when you hear this sort of talk, it is a pretty strong uh, push for the West to be providing Ukraine with the sort of kit that's going to, you know, hamper this incredibly destructive uh, Russian campaign, which, as you say, is not a conventional campaign anymore. This is this is Second World War destruction of infrastructure. Patrick, what's your feeling?
0: Well, I think this is you're absolutely right, James. This is what I'm hearing more and more from people I know who, who work in this area. That, they, that they, you mentioned the Second World War. It seems to me, just observationally, that we're looking at sort of a kind of Germany 1945 situation. Do you think that's a fair comparison? And if you do. Uh, What lessons do you think we can learn from the way we tackle that? I mean, that was a defeated enemy. We're talking here about essentially an ally. I suppose that makes life a little bit easier.
2: I think you're right. Uh, I perhaps use a slightly different comparison. And I think the the campaign in Italy, which lasted longer and was more incremental as each bit of Italian mainland was taken, as each bit was came into Allied hands. So the, the Allies' government of occupation came in behind it and got stuff going. I think that's how it's more likely to be in the context of Ukraine rather than a wholesale end-of-war situation, because I, I think, as you said earlier, I'm not sure that is the thing that will happen. And I think the, the question that most Western nations are worried about, they've hardly got any money to spend on their own internal problems at the moment, how do they actually afford this? $350 billion, I think, is the figure quoted by the UN And I do think we need to see stronger leadership, by the way, from the UN and the UN Secretary-General. I think he has not been sufficiently present within this and showing the leadership that one would hope for from the UN. But I think there are ways through this. I mean, for instance, 60% of uh, the Russian central bank's reserves are frozen and held overseas at 388 billion. These are in places like London and New York. And there are already precedents for this. The Americans have passed a thing called the Magnitsky Act. And the Canadians have passed a special economic measures act to allow people to appropriate money. And there is the, the legal precedent for uh, for the Americans is the appropriation of Afghanistan's state reserves to pay for the victims of 9-11, which has only recently happened. So, you know, there are legal precedents to go ahead and appropriate uh, state money. And this, this money is uh, not difficult to get. It's liquid and it exists within you know, banks within UK, US and elsewhere in the world. Um, But there's also huge amounts of private money, Russian money that ought to be available, harder to reach, uh, but, you know, it can be secured. And we ought to be thinking now about how we do all of that. I think there is some reluctance to do it because places like London want to be seen as a safe place for investors. And if we start taking Russian money, you know, what what present does that set? downstream. But nevertheless, these are hard decisions. And somehow this has got to be paid for. And if it isn't paid for, then Ukraine's economic future looks pretty doubtful to me.
1: You mentioned when we were exchanging emails, James, uh, that the war here was having a broader humanitarian impact elsewhere. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, what I'm trying to do is move the Halo Trust away from being a famous charity for clearing landmines, a fairly niche activity, which does well into something more mainstream. And It seems to me that there is a very interesting correlation between the way in which conflict uh, plays on in a thoroughly negative way, the other great challenges of our age, namely climate, uh, conservation, food security, human security, the disproportionate effect of conflict on women. So Halo is looking at this quite carefully. So a little example of this is Somaliland. Somaliland is somewhere where Halo's had a program for a long time. The Horn of Africa is hugely uh, vulnerable to drought and these the way in which the land has been damaged by poor farming practices is directly related to conflict and as environments become stressed, so the communities become stressed and so they're likely to go back to conflict with each other. And so there's a vicious circle there. Uh, Ukraine was the primary provider of wheat to Egypt and Egypt was the primary provider of wheat to the Horn of Africa. And so grain prices have rocketed uh, in places like Somaliland and therefore conflict is the, is the likely outcome. And that's true. I've just come back from Cambodia, where you see uh, commodity prices rising sharply. Um, I was in Zimbabwe recently, again, the same situation. So there is a direct impact of the, the Ukraine conflict upon much, much poorer countries' ability to sustain this. Um, you know, another example is Ethiopia. I mean, more people are currently dying in the conflict in Tigray than they are in, in Ukraine. And we're not hearing really very much about this at all. So there's a direct economic relationship between the war in Ukraine and the rest of the world. But I think there's also the political taking of sides that we've seen with many countries, quite to the West's surprise, actually, uh, not being as fiercely opposed to Putin as perhaps they, might, as they should have been. And so we're seeing people beginning to align either with the Western bloc or, or with th- this new Eastern bloc that's that's difficult for an organisation like the Holy Trust that is essentially thrived in an international rules-based order. Um, because if we're going to find ourselves, you know, with countries that are increasingly hostile to us, that will make our work all the harder.
1: Well, that was great to hear and some really uh, intriguing points made by James. I mean, one of the things that first struck me, Patrick, is the You know, if it's not dangerous enough clearing ordnance left by war, they're actually doing it while the war is happening uh, in conflict, as James said. And all over the world, too. I mean, of course, we were talking specifically about Ukraine, but Syria, Afghanistan, Libya and other countries. It's an astonishingly important task that's being undertaken uh, and one that, of course, they are expanding all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've got huge numbers of people working for them. I was very impressed by the the way they've expanded, the way they've adapted to the exigencies of war. You know, obviously, employees going off to actually fight in the war, bringing in women, all these people who never would have dreamed a few years ago, a few months ago even, that they might be working as mine uh, clearers, dancers, math teachers, uh, even a screenwriter. I'm also really impressed by the way that it's sort of this incremental work. They're moving into the space left behind by the departing Russians immediately. And, uh, you know, doing what he was being very sort of cool about it. But it seems to me to be extremely risky work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very good to hear, frankly, because, of course, the, the the shock for them is the, the war taking them by surprise. Their initial reaction, let's close down operations, very quickly realized that Russia wasn't going to take over the whole country. So they started up again. But in the meantime, you know, a significant chunk of their staff were, were of course, in the east. It's, it's very good to hear that those who were trapped in the Mariupol siege, as far as he's aware, have all, have, have all survived, although one or two of them it sounds like, have been uh, taken to Russia, which, you know, is obviously pretty concerning.
0: Yeah. I mean, at one level, it's um, just hearing the kind of numbers is quite staggering. That figure of 20,000 artillery rounds being fired from the Russian side a day, of which 10% are blinds, as they military call them, uh, i.e. they don't go off. Plus, Loads of um, missiles that that also get buried in the ground and sit there waiting. You know, one day perhaps to to go off with devastating effect. What really struck me saw was the scale of the destruction that that he talks about. You know, this is not just a question of unexploded ordnance, which is a, you know, of course very significant. But um, talking about this, you know, post apocalyptic landscape that uh, his guys reported on uh, going into. Liberated areas, and this is going to be a massive, massive problem for not just for the Ukrainians, but for the rest, the rest of us. You know, when we have to go in there and and clear up, there is a precedent, of course, or several precedents. But the one he thought the most apt, which is interesting, is in Italy in the Second World War, where there's a kind of incremental mm. occupation, and so in in a way that that's a sort of good aspect of it, in that. It's not going to be like a big bang thing in, in Germany where you, you go into occupied territory and have to start from day one. At least there'll be some sort of, you know, sense of progress and making a plan.
1: Really horrific statistics he was giving us. 700 critical infrastructure targets by the Russians, including schools, businesses, hospitals, power, water, sanitation. I mean, basically everything you need to live, Patrick, as we know. It's chilly in the UK at the moment. Can you imagine what it's like for for everyone over in Ukraine? I mean, we, we cannot stress enough the importance of stopping the war in a military sense and then getting on with or as james puts it carrying along alongside the the war effort uh, an attempt to get the country back on its feet because as he says russia's targeting of the civilian infrastructure is an existential threat to ukraine
0: 350 billion was a figure he mentioned as i suppose a basis for, for restoring ukraine's economy what was encouraging was that um you know, the money w- may already be sitting there in frozen Russian bank accounts. And the legal basis for raiding these accounts, he says, is already in place. That's very heartening. So not just Russian state money, but, you know, Russian oligarchs money could also be appropriated. But he's he's absolutely right that we need to start thinking about this now. There'll be no time to lose at all. So we ought to have all these processes Uh, the legal structures in place, you know, to press the button as soon as it's viable
1: yeah he 's pretty robust in his points wasn 't he? Uh, criticism of the u n the uh, the secretary general of the u n uh, We need stronger leadership uh, and we need to consider every avenue of getting a hold of this money, including uh, Russian private money so that presumably is going to <laughs> they 're talking about more sanctions. I was reading in the press this week more sanctions people who 've kind of slipped through the net so far you know and frankly, uh, that is a direction we should be looking into, but you know incredibly powerful interview not from the battlefield, but just as, if not even more important.
0: Yeah, and reminding us uh, just how the ripples of this war have have uh, spread outwards, afflicting all sorts of people who have no direct uh, place in the conflict, uh, East Africa particularly. This is all, of course, a consequence of, of how interlocked the global economy is. Uh, so it's having an impact on food security, on climate as well, You know, Somaliland, he mentioned, hugely hugely vulnerable to drought, poor farming practices, etc. So they, you know, they really feel the pain from the obvious thing is, of course, you know, the grain that used to flow into the world market from Ukraine, which is now not happening, certainly not to the degree that it was. Anyway, now it's uh, time to answer a few listeners' questions. This is actually more of a statement than a question, but I think it's worth saying. This is from um, Federico in uh, Austin, Texas. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. We always like to hear that. He says, one of the reasons that Putin has given for the invasion, aside from the ridiculous denazifying claim, is that th- the threat that Ukraine would uh, pose if it joined NATO and bring the alliance closer to Russia's borders. He says, Now, I know we can't expect rationality or even true statements from Putin, but I don't get how he explains this. It's simple, Vlad. If you don't want trouble with NATO, all you have to do is not invade any NATO member. Why is that a problem? Or are you planning to invade them?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And the irony, as we've discussed before, Patrick, is that the invasion of Ukraine has actually brought almost certainly at some stage in the future, NATO even closer to Russia's borders. We know that from some of the Nordic countries, that that is a process that's, that's ongoing. And we suspect that there's going to be some kind of deal, we don't know exactly what it will be, some kind of security pact with Ukraine that is going to make it impossible for Russia uh, to carry out any more special operation as Putin and still insists on calling it, in the future, unless it wants a war with NATO. And I think what's also pretty clear from the conflict so far is that Russia clearly is no match for NATO.
0: People keep coming back to this, I think, because it's a fascinating subject. Um, this is from Nigel. Nigel's been studying the ISW maps, uh, which are updated frequently on the where the front lines were, where the military activity is going on. And he, he mentions a patch of territory around Melitopol, which is obviously in Russian hands, and says, according to the legend, this is a Ukrainian partisan activity. Now, I've noticed this myself. it has been there for quite a long time. (laughs) Um, So he wants to know, is there any information about how disruptive or coordinated partisan activities are there? Well, this is something that we just don't know, do we? I mean, uh, the Ukrainians clearly aren't going to tell us. We get odd reports uh, from time to time. We mentioned one uh, last week or the week before, an interview with uh, some of these with the guys that were members of these groups. And I think we came to the conclusion, didn't we, that it's it's pretty sort of ad hoc, but nonetheless effective. And I think, you know, in this day and age, information is tremendously important and can have a, a very profound effect on the on the battlefield. I'm thinking actually of these, these strikes uh, claimed against the Wagner headquarters yeah. in the East. Now, that seems to me to be a classic case where someone on the ground has actually... Transmitted the coordinates of, of the Wagner base, and you know it's been subsequently targeted with devastating effect. We hope. So, yeah, you don't actually need to have a gun or uh, some explosives to have a significant effect if you're behind enemy lines.
1: Yeah, and you know who knows? There could be an element of propaganda, of course, in in all of this. Uh, and why wouldn't the Ukrainians claim to have more uh, partisan activity than they actually do? Because of course, it's going to put the fear of got into Russians moving behind the lines. It reminds me of uh, Spain during the Napoleonic Wars, Patrick, where the, you know, the partidas, the irregulars, caused immense damage to both morale and, of course, the sort of physical ability of the French to fight and, you know, ultimately bled the French army white in Spain by their activity. So, you know, it it's probably is having a material effect, but I'm sure it's also having a psychological effect too.
0: We've got one now from John Roden who... Much enjoyed listening to Robert Fox, Foxy as we call him, uh, last week. Uh, It was actually a real firework display, wasn't it? It was one of our most entertaining ones. He asks, you know, a very basic question, how likely do you think it is that Putin will fall from power? I see a lot of news uh, in inverted commas that his position is becoming untenable and that he could be removed. Is this just fake news uh, or is his strength really weakening? Well, the point I'd like to make here is not about whether he'll go or not, because I, I really think... Uh, We have, since the beginning of this conflict, we haven't had any real reliable indications from any serious sources about where this is going, you know, how much danger is he in, how firm or otherwise is his grip on power. And we get a lot of flaky news. Um, A lot of the most dramatic stuff comes from the general SVR telegram channel. Now, this is, no one seems to know exactly who is putting this stuff out, it's claimed to be a sort of dissident senior Russian ex-security guy who still has links with his old comrades. Um, And they're always, they make great uh, headlines, but how good they are, I don't know. There was one we reported ourselves, I mean, with a lot of health warnings that had actually been a a bomb attack on a a motorcade in which Putin was traveling. This was several months back now. There was another one recently that fell down some stairs, and so on and so forth. So you've got to be very, very wary. And I think the uh, Western security services are being pretty tight-lipped about what they know. It may be that they don't really know much at all.
1: Yeah, exactly right, Patrick. We can't trust everything we're hearing out of Russia. But I think the broader point here was made by Ilya in our interview uh, before. And that is that, frankly, to lose a war uh, when you're an authoritarian leader is, is a bad thing. Uh, And that's an underestimate, really, of the consequences. So it's inevitable that there is going to be an upswell of anger against the war, not necessarily by people who didn't support it in the beginning, but the fact that it's not going well so i think sooner or later uh, we can't put a timescale on it he's going to come under enormous pressure uh, and possibly be removed but you know we'll we'll have to wait and see who knows you know a lot can happen between now and in 6 months time but frankly for a lot of the reasons we've already given in this program we can't see the military situation improving for russia anytime soon yeah okay we've now got a question from richard seeger thanks for your work i enjoy your podcast but to be honest i look forward to the day you sign off because this conflict ends Well, Richard, we totally agree with you. Um, his question is, why aren't we seeing more opposition or resistance to Russian occupation or influence in the other Russian conflict zones, such as Georgia, Moldova, Azerbaijan and Chechnya? Seems they would use the Ukrainian war as a way to stir up their own own internal independence movements. Very good point. I mean, I I think to call those ongoing conflicts is probably going a little bit too far, but there are undoubtedly people in all those locations who would seek to take advantage of Russia's perceived military weakness, and I suspect that is going to be another of the elements that we're going to see as Russia's war goes increasingly badly, putting pressure on the centres, as I just said. Okay, this one's from Ireland, uh, from Owen Scarlett. Uh, He writes, Hi, folks, really enjoying the podcast every week, please keep it up. How is the war in Ukraine changing the Western arms industry? Are we likely to see Western arms manufacturers step up their production scale and volume on a more long term footing as a result of the war? thinking in particular of the frighteningly strong possibility that the West may need to supply Taiwan on a similar scale in the coming years and the need to be ready for this? Very good question. I suspect the answer is almost certainly yes. But Uh, remember that in the West, uh, certainly in the US and the UK, the arms industry on the whole is private, and it takes its orders from the government. So this is really a question of whether or not the government is going to up its orders. uh, And I suspect it will, certainly in America. And possibly there are indications that that's going to happen in the UK as well, although we're strapped for cash, as everyone knows at the moment. But you know, there are real uh, uh, challenges to global security, not just from Ukraine, but also from uh, China and elsewhere. So I do think that the war has shown the the West Western militaries that the stockpile of, of arms that it currently has is not sufficient, uh, and frankly, we need to we need to build them up a little bit more for this type of hot war, which uh, many people would have suspected uh, was unlikely to happen anytime soon.
0: Okay, we've got another uh, three questions from our old friend Alvarez. Uh, do you mind, Alvarez, if we pass over them this week? We'll definitely make some interesting points. We'll mull over them, but. Um, I think it would be good to give um, some newcomers a crack
1: of the whip. The basic beats of what he's saying is that the Polish Ministry of Defence are claiming that the probability of a war that involves Poland is very big. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, and this is very interesting, this is more from Ivaris's backyard, there are reports that a neo-Nazi Rusik. Group that is apparently close to the Wagner group, has ordered information about Lithuania's, Latvia's and Estonia's military capabilities and border protection status. The implication being that there is a possibility of an invasion of those countries. And as Ivara says, things are getting very interesting, aren't they? Uh, can it be that Russia will do such a thing to test how NATO will react? What could they do and how would NATO react? Well, of course, that's a possibility, Ivarus. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they are looking into all kinds of ways of destabilizing public opinion in your country and elsewhere. But I think the broader point that I would say to give you any kind of uh, peace of mind is that as a member of NATO, NATO has your back. So if there are any incursions, this is going to trigger Article 5. Uh, I hope that makes you sleep a little bit happier at night, Ivaris.
0: Uh, on the subject of Wagner, we've got one from John Murph21. That's his Twitter handle. Great podcast, he says. Please keep it going. And he says, just wondering, as in terms of World War II parallels, which you often reference, does the Wagner group strike you as being akin to the Waffen SS, i.e., a supposed elite entity that's somewhat outside regular army command structures? Well, it seems to me that the closest comparison I can make with World War II unit to the Wagner group is the outfit that was commanded by one Oscar Derlewanger. It was called uh, the Derlewanger Battalion, the Derlewanger Regiment, etc. This guy was a uh, SS Oberfuhrer and the men he led were a band of psychopaths like himself, a lot of them ex-jailbirds, rapists, murderers, some of them freed from lunatic asylums, and they roamed around the rear areas of the Eastern Front in Poland and Belarus, burning down villages, killing, murdering, raping, dreadful, dreadful history behind them. According to Timothy Snyder, the author of Bloodlands, a great expert on the 20th century or early 20th century period in that that part of Eastern Europe, in all the theatres of the Second World War, few could compete in cruelty with Derlewanger. Now, if you want to find out more, there's a brilliant film called Come and See, which was made in 1985, so saviour-era Russia um, by a, a brilliant Russian director, lm Klimov. And it, it's really quite sad that um, it's come to this where, you know, Klimov, who made this film in the very much in the spirit of this can, should never happen again, this can never happen again. In Russia's name, there is a unit which uh, at first sight bears quite a close comparison to this Derlawanger group.
1: Okay, the final uh, question, well, it's more of a statement than a question, is from John Stewart. Uh, And this does sound very interesting. Hi, both, he says. I just wanted to say hello. I live in Brighton. I run an MA music program at a local university and play guitar for Sleeper and the wedding present. Um, (laughs) There is a point to this. We're we're, we're getting to it. I've been listening to your podcast. It's brilliant. I'm a regular listener to the, and this is a Twitter um, account, at Mariah Report. That's M-R-I-Y-A-R-E-P-O-R-T, all one word. It's a Twitter space that's been running 24 hours a day since the 23rd of February, uh, the day before the invasion. You'd be very welcome to pop in and talk. And we might well do that, actually. It's mostly military experts such as Malcolm Nant, journalists such as John Sweeney, and the Telegraph podcast team, business people and economists. Plus, importantly, Ukrainians themselves, including many people working and fighting on the front lines. Roman Ratushny was a regular on the show before, unfortunately, he died in battle. And after that incident, his father appeared on the stream for a very moving segment. So, you know, clearly it's getting right to the heart of the matter. And we would urge anyone who wants to follow the war in real time and not just weekly uh, by listening to us to, to keep an eye on that stream. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I don't speak much on there, says John, but I'm there all the time and know the team behind it. Okay, I hope you get a moment to pop in. You would be very welcome. Slava, Ukraini. Well, we may well respond to that. It sounds absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, thanks for that, John. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Before we go, just a quick reminder to email any questions to battlegroundukraine, all one word, at com and to follow us on Twitter at at Saul David 66 or at Pod Battleground. Uh, just a reminder as a special treat we've got two episodes next week, uh, our Christmas bonus episode which will go out on Monday when we share a glass of wine uh, or two with guests Jesse Childs and Richard Foreman to discuss military history books of the year and there'll be our usual Ukraine episode on Friday when we'll be discussing the latest news from the conflict and talking to another brilliant guest, Professor Sir Hugh Straw. Goodbye.